Okay, 1 Corinthians 2. This chapter is an amazing chapter, and it's if you don't get certain things about what Paul's doing, and by the way, when I speak and we do this practical stuff, the old rules apply. You can ask a question or make a comment anytime, okay? Because I'm not doing a presentation with a PowerPoint. 1 Corinthians 2, one of the reasons it's really important to me is that misinterpreting that deceived me for years, okay? And how 1 Corinthians 2 gets misinterpreted is that the reader fails to understand that Paul is speaking with irony. So when somebody says something ironic and you take it literally, you did not understand them. And you can get the opposite idea. Let me tell you an example that happened just this week. The campground manager down where we have the trailer in Iowa said, well, this, and I'm not going to say exactly what he said. I'm going to make it a little euphemized. (laughs) You know, this is on the Internet. He says, well, there's a, I uh, told Diane, well, there's a, the, the trailer next to her has got ruined because the people didn't winterize it and all the water pipes ruptured and then swarped and wrecked and they're just going to pull out. So somebody else wanted to pull in that campground spot and Diane said, well, what are these? And they said, and they'd like to put their trailer in backwards because they have these big windows and they want to be able to see the lake from the windows. But then, their awning's going to be toward, going towards Diane's. And uh, so Diane says, well, which makes, it, makes you closer together in a sense. Well, what are these people like? Well, the guy, the campground manager said, the wife is really nice, but the guy's a total idiot. And I'm saying it nicely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Diane thought he meant it literally. And so she called me and said, well, what do you think? I said, well, just tell them no. You don't have to agree to this. You're just too nice. You're, you, you, you are too accommodating. Just sell, say no. Well, it turns out that when he said that to her, the guy was standing right there, and he was just making fun of him to tease him. <laughs> and he's really, uh, this other guy in the camp came by and told my wife, no, he's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. And, and he's one of these engineer types that can solve any kind of problem. He'll be a great neighbor. Well, so then that changed everything. But see, when somebody tells you something that they don't mean literally, right, and you take it literally, you're misinterpreting. Does that make sense? All right, so when we go through 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to claim, and Gordon Fee proves this conclusively, that Paul's using irony. And if you take it literally, you can actually come up some, with some really bad theology. So that's my illustration of why you have to understand authorial intent. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 2, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Remember Sophia? is what they loved. Eric has very clearly explained that to you. Sophia, wisdom. They liked the, the philosophers and the wise people of the world. Paul didn't come with that. Verse 2. 
For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, that passage is really important and it shows the centrality of the gospel. It's not that Paul didn't have any theology that he could teach besides just Jesus and Him crucified. It's not that that's the only thing Paul knew. But what he's saying here is that this is what I preach to you. Because this is what I want your faith to rest on. The crucified Jewish Messiah. This is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is to send His own Son into the world to die for sins. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world is totally different than the wisdom of God. And I'm telling you uh, that what we can do to apply that one is that it's a crying shame when you've got pulpits, thousands and thousands and thousands of pulpits in the United States of America, and in most of them, Jesus Christ and Him crucified isn't even preached. It doesn't even get on the radar screen. And you want to know why everything's run amok in our country? That's why. If Jesus Christ and Him crucified was preached in every pulpit every Sunday, I promise you our entire country would be changed. It would change who we vote for. It would change how we think. It would change what we understand to be important. But it's really not that way right now, unfortunately. Verse 3, For I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now this would set Paul apart from the traveling sophists who would get paid for their wisdom as in the Greek world. And they came, they had to be portrayed as somebody important, somebody great, somebody you want to see, somebody vigorous and young or what have you. And the message of Jesus Christ, and I thank God for this because if it wasn't true, I'd be in trouble. The message of Jesus Christ isn't depending on the physical stature of the preacher, right? I'm old. I don't have a lot of energy. I've got allergies. I've got problems. I've got plenty of weaknesses. But that won't affect the message of Jesus Christ. It won't, it won't one bit diminish the power of the gospel to save. So I just pray that I have enough years to keep doing this, that's all. By God's grace. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now again, let's understand what he means by this. Okay? You have to look at context. You have to understand the authorial intent. What is the power? What is he talking about when he says power? Well, in First Corinthians 1, Paul said that the message of the cross was the power of God for salvation. Okay, when Paul's talking about power, he's talking about the power of God to convert lost sinners. All right. Now, when I was a Pentecostal and then after that a charismatic, when I saw this, my mind says, oh, it's not enough to preach. You have to do signs and wonders. Okay, power meant signs and wonders. But that's ignoring Paul's meaning when he uses the term power in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the power of God to salvation. So that's a different matter. Okay? And signs and wonders in and of themselves aren't going to solve people's problems. They're still bound for hell. But when you're converted, 
you have your eternal problem solved. You're going to die and go to be with God forever and ever. Amen? So, um, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yeah, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So what wisdom did God predestine before the ages? By the way, this is a discussion in Sunday school, so don't be shy. So I'm going to ask a question, see if somebody answer it. What wisdom did God predestine before the ages? All right, Robert, you have to answer because you couldn't find anybody. <laughs> what wisdom did God predestine before the ages? Well, it was the gospel. Yeah. But that, yeah, he chose before in him before the foundation of the world um, who would be saved. Yeah, exactly. What's the wisdom of God predestined before the ages is the gospel itself, that God would send his own son. Remember last Sunday I was preaching on that, that the plan of sending the son, now I, I, I trust you know Christian theology, that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share the same divine essence, all right? They, dis, they have the same divine nature. And they have for all eternity. And they always were the Trinity. So before the ages, that is before creation, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, planned that the Son would come and die for sins. That there was going to be a fall. They already knew that. And that they had a plan of what was going to deal with it, which was the sun coming into the world. And this was God's wisdom predestined before the ages. Now, this is being questioned now. You, you know, something that's different right now than, me, than it was when I was saved in 1971. There's somebody somewhere calling themselves an evangelical right now, questioning every Christian doctrine that was ever taught. Okay? The uh, open theists say God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Well, if he doesn't know what's going to happen, how could he have a plan of salvation from before the ages? But they don't care. The emergent, they question this, and they call the idea of sending your son to be punished for somebody else's sin cosmic child abuse. All right? There, there isn't anything that won't be questioned. So Christian pastors ought to know that and teach theology to their own churches. We have to, it's my obligation and the obligation of all of our elders and teachers here, we have to equip you to be able to withstand these winds of doctrine and the questioning of essential Christian doctrines. And the, the idea that people don't want to learn doctrine in the 21st century and that they need to hear something more relevant is the well let me just say it it's the stupidest idea I ever heard <laughs> I, was, I was just writing a card <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, 
And just the concept that even in denying doctrine, you have a doctrine. You can't have a doctrineless vacuum. It just doesn't exist. Because in saying that Christ doesn't matter, that's a statement, and it's either true or it's false, but it can't just be neutral. It's not possible. <laughs> I love it. Karen, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's wonderful. Nice to have you here, by the way. She's here from Boston. Um, yeah, you absolutely. Obviously, if you're going to make, deny a doctrine, you've got to at least know what you're talking about and then say this is true or this is false. Now, I'm writing a paper right now. I'm just about done with it, my next CIC article, and it's about a book called Me. Isn't that your favorite topic? <laughs> Me. <laughs> it's kind of a depressing topic if if you understand the holiness of God anyhow. But it is so low level. I, in my article, I quote a, a paragraph from Francis Schaeffer's book from 1971 that's on the same topic, which is sanctification. And in the paragraph, Schaeffer lays out the gospel in the most powerful terms in one paragraph. And that was on the first page of his book. And I say in my article... There's more theology in this one paragraph from Schaefer than there is in the entirety of this Ortberg's book. And I'm not exaggerating. And so the, the modern pastor assumes that the modern Christian is totally incapable of learning anything. You know, you read like two paragraphs where he talks about some idea, and then you got a story. You know, story, story, story couple ideas, story, story, idea, story, story. And the ideas aren't even gleaned from Scripture. And I'm appalled. And what happened? When I was saved, uh, I was reading stuff like Schaefer. And it, it helped groom me. And actually, when I got into air, it was Schaefer to help pull me out of it from his, from his writings. And one of the things I'll say tonight at my seminar on the emergent down in Des Moines is the thing that's really alarming to me is I'm looking around the evangelical world and I don't see any Francis Schaeffers. I don't see anybody willing to lay out a strong intellectual case for Christian doctrines to the young people that are going to college that have the questions. And the emergents are coming along with their stuff and they portray themselves as the intellectuals. And they're saying to the Christian young people, well, you're, you grew up in these consumerized churches that really didn't have anything to offer. We're going to answer your questions. But their answers are anti-Christian. Their, their answers are false. They're very intellectual, but they're false. So uh, if you want to pray for something, pray for God to raise up a Francis Schaefer. I don't see him. I don't see anybody out there, Literally. And why am I saying that? Well, I'm not saying that R.C. Sproul or MacArthur or, you know, we don't, we don't have any good teachers. But there isn't any Labrie. There isn't anybody reaching out to the college-age intellectuals that have real questions that I see. I maybe don't know about it. Maybe it exists and I don't know about it. And so that's my burden. And... Uh, I'll do my best, but I'm I'm definitely not Francis Schaeffer, that's for sure. So we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Verse 7, 
the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. I'm trying to remember how Eric dealt with this. Maybe you do, Eric. Um, the, I think the idea is that in the crucifixion of the Messiah, the rulers, quote-unquote, that were opposed to God's purpose were unwittingly carrying out God's purpose. Is that the correct interpretation? Yeah, so God, it's, it's the idea that God uses their evil for his purposes. You know, what they meant for evil, he turned to good. Yeah, in Genesis I was just preaching on that, yeah. uh, I think, last Sunday. Yeah, the, the whole idea of compatibilism. The, the God allows evil. Here's something that I learned from a Labrie lecture that was given, I think, by J.I. Packer back in the 80s. He laid it out this way. God allows evil. God uses evil. God overcomes evil for a greater good than what had been otherwise. All right, so it's all for the greater good. He allows evil. He uses evil. He overcomes evil for the greater good. That's a great little way to remember the solution to the problem of evil. See, a lot of these theological um, errors that are prevalent are because people are trying to solve the problem of evil, but they're doing so in unbiblical ways. Open uh, um, theism says, well, you don't blame God for evil because he didn't know it was going to happen. Okay, that, well, that's a philosophical solution, but it's not a biblical one. Okay, so that's where these errors emergence says this. God is a relational God because of the Trinity. What we can know about God is because he's a Trinitarian God that he's relational. So God being relational is such a God that is going to reconcile all relationships. So therefore, in the end, there's no hell. All beings that ever existed have to be relationally brought to God. That's their concept of Trinitary relationalism. Yes. We were talking about the eternal decree earlier, and uh, I was going to back up to uh, verse 1 where it talks about, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, other manuscripts uh, interpret the testimony as a mystery or the secret of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And there's a cross-reference to Romans uh, 16, uh, verse 25 and 26, this is the uh, doxology that, uh, that Paul gives. It says in verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but, now, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according Mm -hmm. to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. That's a a very good cross-reference because it reveals what the New Testament means by mystery. Mystery doesn't mean something you can't understand. It doesn't mean something that's secret. It means something that we would not have known had God not chosen to reveal it. Because there, it makes it clear that it's known. It's now made known. Yes. So, absolutely. That God was going to save the Gentiles through the Jewish Messiah was a mystery 
had God not chosen to reveal it and had he not chosen to do it. Amen. So there's, there's no secret that you have to understand through some modern prophet. It's all revealed in the Bible. So the, the rulers of this age didn't understand. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? Well, because they are opposed to God's purposes, and by crucifying the Lord of glory, they furthered God's purpose and brought salvation to people. So had they really understood it, they would have said, fine, let's let him start a kingdom right here now, and let's not have a crucified Messiah. And then they would have foiled God's purposes. But just as it's written, verse 9, things which have eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Again, talking about the fact that wasn't understood by men until God chose to reveal it. Verse 10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. All right, now here we go. <laughs> There's a verse that at one point I was looking at when I was in my 20s, and I thought, there we go. I'm going to be a spiritual man. I used to carry around these books by Washman Nee called The Spiritual Man. Okay? And it was my goal to be one. I wanted to be the spiritual man. And so I'm going to read this verse, and I'm going to think, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to, the Spirit of God is going to reveal to me things that people hadn't even thought about before. Okay? And I uh, was following whatever endeavor might lead to that conclusion. But Paul's not talking about secrets that are unknown or not revealed in Scripture. He's talking about the wisdom of God that's revealed through the Gospel. And the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit for us to even be willing to listen to the gospel. Is that not right? Well, I remember when I was first told the gospel, it just made me mad. Okay. You mean to tell me some people are going to hell? Yep. You mean to say that only people who actually believe Jesus Christ and trust him are going to go to heaven? Yep. <laughs> And people don't think that's right. They don't think that can be the way. Why would God do that? Why would God be so narrow? But it takes the work of the Holy Spirit for the mystery of the gospel to uh, just (laughs) become alive in us. So we love what we used to hate. We long for that. And so it was the Holy Spirit who revealed the truth of the gospel. Verse 11, from who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Well, what things are freely given to us by God? What is he talking about here? He's got to be talking about masses of wealth. Rick looks like he doesn't believe it's that way. <laughs> we had Justin Peters here talking about that. He's got to be talking about some special elite status that we haven't yet achieved. But if you read chapter 1 and get the basis of what Paul's talking about first, 
before you go to chapter 2, you'll know that the things freely given to us by God have to do with the power of God to save us from our sins through the crucified Messiah. Now, Eric, I want you to be free because you did all the exegetical work. I'm just doing an application. If I'm missing some point exegetically, jump in and correct me. I'm okay? All right. He's the expert if you want to know the exegesis. <laughs> you know, the quotation that Paul uses here from Isaiah 64 and 65, where it says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Of course, the quote there is referring to something more than just visual seeing and more than just hearing with your ears, but it's not perceiving and understanding the things of God because you're a depraved sinner. And mm-hmm. so the only, the only way out of that, of course, is what you're alluding to is the work of the Spirit. Absolutely. I was just writing about that uh, when I was finishing up this paper I'm writing. I was just writing about Romans 1 when it says that God can be seen in the creation. Okay? So, But if you read the context of Romans 1 and you read Romans 1 through 3, you'll see that Paul's point is that everybody knows enough about God from the creation to be condemned. His point isn't, you, they, okay, I'll go out here. and so back this guy's book I'm reading. He says, oh, some people meet God through nature. You know, that's, he's, his, his whole point is everybody's different in how they come to God based on their temperament. And so you got to do a personality test to find out how to come to God. And so some people meet God through nature. So you go out and, oh, God. Now, is Paul claiming that you could go out in the woods and be saved just because you're in the woods? No. If you read Romans 1, he's saying they're without excuse. In other words, you can see enough about God in nature to be um, condemned because he should have known better. But to actually meet God, Robert, you have you need the gospel. Otherwise... We wouldn't have to preach the gospel, just go out into the woods. That, that's interesting because uh, I actually had a cousin of mine who was sharing the gospel with me and who's actually a Lutheran, believe it or not. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry, Lutherans. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there are definitely saved Lutherans out there. And he was uh, faithfully preaching the gospel to me uh, you know, when I was about maybe 21 years old. And... Uh, he made it all very clear, and, it, and, it, and to me, it wasn't it wasn't uh, the fact that okay, I understood if you accept the gospel and you'll be saved. If you reject the gospel, you won't be saved. But then my thought was, you know, I was an atheist, you know, so I said, well, what about that guy that lives on that lone deserted desert island, you know? And then he looks at me and he says, well, I said, he says, well, you know, basically he said, well, if that guy doesn't repent, then he's going to hell. <laughs> and I, that's that's what made me mad. I wasn't mad about. The people that had heard it and rejected it. But I, what I was mad about was the guy on the, the, the deserted desert island. All right. Uh, let me comment on that. I was preaching on Sola Scriptura one of these weeks within the last month or so. And it's probably one of you, but somebody from our congregation came up to me after the sermon and said that he had just heard a TV preacher saying why he wouldn't believe Sola Scriptura. He said the reason he refused to believe that doctrine was that if he accepted Sola Scriptura, 
then you have to accept the idea that people that never heard the gospel are going to go to hell. And he says, I can't accept that idea, so I reject sola scriptura. This is what he, this is what he said. That's when I was preaching on Korah, on, on sola scriptura. So it's basically, if God doesn't do things the way I think he should, I won't serve him. If the Bible tells me about God in a way that I don't think God ought to be, I won't believe the Bible. And so who's setting themselves up on the throne? The, the person, right, sitting on the throne. So I'm going I'm to determine, I'm the final arbitrator of what's true and what's false. Now, as I've said in many times in the past, this whole thing gets started because we have this idea that everybody deserves to be saved. And as a matter of fact, God's not obligated to save anybody. And he never was. And if God just has to be fair, then I think he should definitely have a plan of salvation for Satan and the fallen angels. But he never did. Their lake of fire was prepared for them. So we don't deserve anything. And if we find salvation, it's because of pure mercy, not because of our merits. And so let's just, the Bible says what it says. And if the Bible's true, we've got to believe what it says about God, and we've got to believe what it says about salvation. And what it does say about these things is God's wisdom predestined from before the foundation of the world. It's God's wisdom from all of the ages. And what God reveals through the Spirit is the gospel, not some secret information you can't find in the Bible. The thoughts of God no one knows but except the Spirit of God. This would be, in my opinion, I'm saying this is simply the doctrine of the uh, uh, verbal inspiration of the entire Scriptures. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. All right? And so the Scriptures are Spirit-breathed, God-breathed. And if you want to know what the Spirit of God reveals about God... You have to become a student of the scriptures, not a mystic. By the way, this book I'm writing about, one of my sections in there talks about, you can, you know a lot about a person by who his heroes are. Who, who, who are the really great people? And so I'm reading this book, and the really great people are Ruth Haley Barton, mystic false teacher, Dallas Willard, Henry Nguyen, Thomas Merton, every mystic that's written in the last so many years. Uh, I can't, what's his, D, D what's that, Tailhard D? Yeah, he's a hero. Did you call for the mic? No. Oh, Karn, okay. It's a little past now, but I was just commenting on the, on the desert island question. There are areas that the Bible just doesn't say, like with infants that are that die in the womb or die young, or and you can't tell what their personal confession is. Yeah. And it's not clear, but the point is that God, we know for sure that God is just and that God is good, and whatever He chooses will be right. And so, how He handles situations where it doesn't seem clear to us, granted, it seems difficult for us to understand sometimes how he works there but we do know that what he does will be just and it won't be yeah unfair and i think you're just you you answered you you said what i was going to say when, beforehand yeah. it's just that god if you understand how fallen humans are 
yeah. and how we really don't deserve something, a lot of pieces fall into place and you just... Yeah, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. It's like when I was in seminary, uh, it came up, well, what about a, a, a one-year-old who dies? Do they all go to heaven because of the age of accountability? And so they had this big discussion going on. And so finally, of course, I have to dr- jump in there and make everybody mad. And I said, okay, if you can't show me in the Bible where what the age of accountability is and that that one exists, tell me why I should believe in that. If, if we needed to know that, wouldn't God reveal it? No, if God wants to, if he, at the end he says, okay, uh, every baby under three or five or seven or whatever the age is all goes to heaven, that's fine. I won't complain. God can do what he wants to do. But we can't preach something he hasn't revealed. Who are we to say something exists that God never said existed? All right? And so and then so all these people got mad, and we had this big heated thing going in a seminary class. And so I put my hand up, and the professor let me say something else. <laughs> and I said, listen, the, the reason the Bible doesn't tell us what happens to babies that die is because babies can't read the Bible. The Bible's for the people old enough to understand it. Let God take care of the babies, and I'm not worried. Whatever it is, it is. I just had to chime in on this as well. That's the importance of preachers. You know, Paul answers the question of that poor soul on the desert island. How will they hear unless someone preaches, and how will they preach unless they're sent? Blessed are the feet are those who bring good tidings. That's why we have to send preachers because it's so... And getting back to the idea that they're somehow innocent... The whole point that Paul's making in the first three chapters is whether you have the law, you're a Jew, or you don't have the law, you're still condemned. And Romans 1.20 is saying you're without excuse. Before a holy and righteous God, he has sent you the created order so that you may act in a certain way based on conscience and based on what you've seen in the, uh, the general revelation. And they don't even respond to that. And so the very light that they're given, they don't respond to, but rather they run from it, and therefore they're condemned as well. And so they're without excuse. In in Romans 1, 2, in the first part of 3, is very clear. And it doesn't change. The conscience isn't going to save us. It's going to condemn us. Nature isn't going to save us. It's going to condemn us. The law isn't going to save us. It's going to condemn us. And so you go through every possible way of knowing God or his moral law that you can think of. And Paul says, you're dead. But then he points to the gospel, okay? Yes. Does anybody ever approach all these questions from the, uh, cons- from the perspective of election? God chose the Jews. He didn't choose all the rest of the nations. He chose some people and not others. Does that not go back to that, that, right on earth? That's pertinent. And I, I'll, I've seen interesting arguments on, from Arminians and Calvinists about the idea that infants that die all go to heaven. I... Um, what's his name, Bettner, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. He has an argument in there that all babies that die go to heaven, and his argument is this. God will uh, never allow one of the non-elect to die until they get old enough to know better. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know that Bettner's right, but I'm just telling you there's a lot of different ways to argue these things. But, you know, we need to stick to what's revealed, and what's revealed is that we need to preach the gospel to everybody, 
and that those who believe are going to be saved. And all this other stuff, okay, that's fine. If you go to seminary, I suppose you can go in the library and debate everything you want, as long as you want. I used to do that. <laughs> those poor teachers, they shake their head when they see me coming into class. <laughs> they knew it was going to be a difficult day. <laughs> I think sometimes they'll argue from the, I don't have the exact verse, but, uh, you know, your names are blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life or something like that. So it's like everybody's names are in the book, and then, you know, once you come to a certain age, then it gets blotted out or something like that. I think I've heard that argument before. Yeah, there. Um, I've heard that too. If you look at the idea of the roll book of heaven, it's used in several different ways in the Bible, including in Moses, in Revelation, I think it's in Hebrews, enrolled, those who are enrolled. I don't think you can come to uh, ultimately a doctrine of election or non-election based on the idea that there is such a book. All right. In, in the ancient world, the roll book, it would be a, a keeping track of the citizens of a city. Right? If their name's in there, then they're a citizen of the city. Okay? If they died then they'd brought out the name because the person would no longer be there. But that's an analogy that's used a number of different ways. I, I, I did a full study of it one time and came to the conclusion that it isn't always used the same way. All right. What we do know is that in Revelation and in Hebrews, the, the roll book has to do with the actual saved people's names being in there. They're the citizens of heaven. That's what it means. Whether they can be erased out or not, you know, I believe in the perseverance of the saints, and I've said this many times. What kind of eternal life is temporary? <laughs> if it's temporary, it's not eternal life. You don't have it. Okay. Who, Brian? Somebody have a... Okay. All right, let's go back to our text. Verse 12, I think I did. We know the things freely given to us by God. What are those things? Things having to do with gospel salvation. Which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And notice thoughts and words are italicized. So literally spiritual with spiritual. Well, the contrast here is between human wisdom, which the sophists, the rhetoricians of uh, Greece would offer and get paid for and be popular. And that's what the Corinthians wanted. They wanted Sophia, wisdom, human wisdom. And with those taught by the Spirit, which would be the teaching of the apostles, which now is our New Testament, I claim the words taught by the Spirit are in the Bible. They're not taught by Todd Bentley or Benny Hinn, or whoever. Wayne. Um, so uh, back into John 14 and 16, Jesus introduces the Helper, the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, as one who will come and teach, one who will bring you truth over and over again. He says those types of things. Yeah. Sounds like, Bob, you're, you're saying that the Holy Spirit does not work in our lives illuminating bringing truth into our hearts other than what we read in the Scripture. 
Is that what you are yeah, saying? Yeah, that's sola scriptura. Absolutely. It never happens. That the Holy Spirit uh, will um, illuminate wh- or bring some truth in my I, life for application in my life. Okay. I believe the Holy Spirit will convict us that what it says in the Bible is true and will lead us to certain things in the text that we need to know or do. And I don't really even say anything. We don't get any ideas. I remember uh, Dr. Ray LeVay, one of my teachers, who at the time, I liked him because he was quite a character, but at the time I kind of was on a different page than him. But he was talking about this at North Central Bible College. And he, and, he said, and he said that he didn't believe any new, that there are any new revelations. He says, but every once in a while, the Holy Spirit gives us a sanctified idea. <laughs> okay. So I'll go so far as to say that we might have a sanctified idea. But we need to have the right categories. And we've done a lot of writing in CIC to get these categories down. The difference between God's moral law and his providential. And... Somebody was just asking me about this. Somebody from another state called and they were asking about this. Should I do this or I should, do, should I do that? Okay, what is God telling me? And I, I made these categories. I said, you have God's moral law, then you know what you can and cannot do without it being sin. Now, if you have two valid choices, you could do this or you could do that. You just make your decision, and God works through the decision itself. That's his providential will. You don't need a prophet or a revelation. You just make your decision. Now, God, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not at work. Okay? I make all kinds of decisions, and to my amazement, God uses them for something good. And the illustration I used in my article on this was Moses in the bulrushes. If you read that whole story of Moses' birth, of his salvation from being killed as an infant, from being tossed into the Nile, from being found in the Nile, from being plucked out of the Nile, and from being given to his sister seeing it and giving him back, getting him back to his own mother to be raised. Not once did God speak to anybody. All right? It's just, this was God totally at work, but he never spoke to anybody. He never said to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, Go down to the Nile and start looking for a bu- uh, ark and bulrushes. All right? And, but this whole event was leading ulti- ultimately to the gospel of salvation. Because God was going to use Moses. And I, th- I want the, the church of God, meaning the truly saved, to, to have confidence that if they make decisions that are valid decisions that are not immoral, that God is, that's, the Holy Spirit's still working. He's still taking us where he wants us to go, but he's using our decision. But when we become people that think, I've got to get a personal revelation from God, and then, well, I'm not very good at that. Huh, what's God saying? Well, then they go to mysticism. And they say, you know, they're well, listening to the Henry Nguyen's and the Thomas Merton's and the Richard Foster's and the Dallas Willard's, because they're trying to figure out what the spirits say. And so I want to avoid that by just taking that category away. One caveat with that, John 14 and the Holy Spirit um, bring to remembrance what he is, that in fact Christ has taught. That may be just um, specifically related to the apostles. Mm-hmm. And evidence of that is found in John 15:26, when it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, 
That is the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. And the reason why I remember that passage is because it's one of the, in my opinion, the apostolic credentials. Um, these men were with them from the beginning, so the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance everything that Jesus taught so that they would write it, and therefore you and I can believe it. And so to take John 14 and necessarily say that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance everything that Christ said, specifically through me, not the apostle, um, maybe stretching it. Um, okay. So I, I may... 16.13, sure. It goes on to say in 13, it says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And again, one of, one of the issues there is the Holy Spirit does reveal to us truth, but it's always related to the Scriptures. And, and in other words, from these passages, I wouldn't expect to get a divine revelation as to whether I should do something or not. What I do is I say, well, is something revealed in Scripture? And if it's not, if I'm not bound by something, then it's under the category of Christian freedom. Yes. Um, that's how I would understand That's how we teach it. Yeah. Yep. Robert. Yeah, I think another verse that talks about this is in Romans 8, in verse 12, that talks about, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to deed to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So I think what that's saying is that if we are putting to death the deeds of the body, we are being led yeah. by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and the lead there, the word lead is a go in the Greek, and it means to bring or carry a go. So we're, we're being more, it isn't that the Holy Spirit says, okay, now go out, take a left, take a right, take a left, go straight. It's that the Holy Spirit is literally carrying us or bringing us to glory. Carried, I wrote an article on this called Carried by the Comforter. So the Holy Spirit is ensuring, His work in our lives ensures that we actually get to glory. Hallelujah. And so He is leading you. But where He's leading you is to God's arms and to glory. Hallelujah. You know, we need to have, have I'll tell you, I didn't always think this way, and uh, I used to think that all this, these verses were saying you had to get personal revelations about everything. And so that's what I was trying to do. Well, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that. And I thought if I got it wrong, I'd be cursed. And my life would go bad. And if I got it right, then everything would always work out. Okay. And uh, I, I wrote about this and even made a category called Miracle Guidance Stories. So in our meetings... In the 70s, some the, the leaders had these stories that made us think they were like Moses. Okay, the leader would come into town and said, "God told me that I had to have a new property purchased by such and so a date, and that there was one up in northern Minnesota." So he went up in northern Minnesota and he bought this uh, place that ended up being Zion Harbor. And then he'd go around telling that story. Yep, we got this place because God told me to buy it. Well, he also went in order to pay for it and told people, God told me you're supposed to give me your money. <laughs> and so they did. 
And I was, I was totally caught up into that, all right? And I believed it all. And so part of all these critical issues that I've written, I'm trying to give people the right category so that they don't feel like they're failing God, okay? If you think you have to listen to the Spirit to decide where, what house to buy or what car to buy or what job to take or what person to marry or what... Uh, and then, and then if, you, if you do hear the Spirit and make the right choice, it's going to be like the Midas touch. You can't go wrong. And then if it does go wrong, then you weren't listening to the Spirit. You know what that does to people? Because if you think you're going to go through life and nothing goes wrong, you're really not too realistic. <laughs> okay? And you're going to end up, if you think that way, you'll end up thinking, I married the wrong person, I bought the wrong house, I bought the wrong car, I took the wrong job, and you'll never get out of that. But if you believe in Christian liberty and you believe that the Holy Spirit is carrying us to glory and that anything that's not covered by God's moral law is is something that we can choose validly, and if something goes wrong, God just using it, that will, that's, that's the most liberating thing. It took me 10 years to figure that out. And when I did it, well, no, it wasn't 10 years. It was 15. I'm giving myself too much credit. <laughs> but when it finally came to me, I could just make a decision. If it wasn't a sin, then God will use my decision. Okay, Diane. One of the things that happens... Um, when you think that God has to speak to you personally and that you have to have the message for the next time or what, whatever the thing is or the direction, you can end up using that as a hammer. God told me that. Yeah. And, and you can mess up not only yourself, Other people. but all of these people around you that are listening to you because they're going to say, is that what God is saying? And he's, God told me, so it must be true. I remember selling my entire coin collection when I was in college because a guy said, God told me that the value of coins was going to go down and was never going to be this high again. (laughs) And So I had this coin collection that had silver dollars. My grandfather had given me um, various silver coins, dimes, quarters, 50-cent pieces, uh, collectible, various versions of coins. And this guy said, they're never going to be this high again. It's time to sell them, because God told him. Why I believed him, I have no clue. And so I took my coin collection down. I remember where I was down in the IDS Center. There was a coin dealer. This was in the early 70s. And I brought them all in there that I had accumulated through my entire childhood. And the guy's looking at him, and he said, I'll give you 35 bucks for the whole works. And, I, and so I started balking, thinking, 35 bucks? It took me an awful long time to collect all these coins. And the guy was kind of harsh, and he says, well, I have a hard time deciding what I'd rather have, my money or your coins. And so I sold them. And I took the $35, and I bought my wife an Easter dress. And I don't know if you realize this, but coins hold their value better than Easter dresses. 
So we had a nice Easter dress for a year, maybe two. And Yeah, you're right, Diane. You listen to these guys and heard from God. It could be a bad outcome. <laughs> Turns out, by the way, at that point, a silver dollar was worth like $2 or $2.50. By the end, by within less than 10 years, a silver dollar was worth $22. Remember that? Were you around in the 70s and the silver went through the roof? Yeah, that guy had it figured out. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they, can, they are spiritually appraised. Now, again, misinterpreted verse. What does this verse say? Let's just ask ourselves that. What is it saying? It's saying that no one will believe the gospel unless the Holy Spirit does a work in the in, in, inside, convicts them, right? The gospel itself offends everybody until the Holy Spirit does a work of grace. That's what it's saying. It doesn't... The inability doesn't mean inability to understand the concept. It's the inability to accept it. Now, Eric, you can add to this, but when I first read this, again, to me, the natural man and the spiritual man were two different types of Christians. Okay? The natural man was a carnal Christian, and he didn't get the, the really deep things. He just sort of had a superficial Christianity. The spiritual man was me. <laughs> it's funny how that works. Yeah, I wasn't satisfied with just ordinary Christianity and ordinary Christian doctrine. I had to have the deep things. But Paul's category is the natural man is the unsaved, and a spiritual man is the saved. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't come to realize how seriously I was misinterpreting this until I bought Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians, and it was an eye-opener. But this verse tells us that it takes a work of grace for somebody to be saved. The things of the Spirit of God have to do in the context with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, most of you have probably shared the gospel with somebody, right? Family member, or you told, you know, how you came to Christ and why you came to him, or what have you. If you have, and I assume everybody probably has, how many of you noticed that it's almost impossible to get them to understand it or to get it? It's, it's like talking to a brick wall. No, you're a sinner, and the law of God condemns you. And you're going to go to hell. Oh. Well, who wants to hear that? And you need the blood atonement. And here's Jesus, and here's what he did. And he died for sins, and his blood was shed, and he was bodily raised. And if you don't repent, this won't apply to you, and you're going to go to hell. Have you have you had that experience? Like, I can't get it. What are you talking about? This, what kind of God is that? I think I'll go back to my liberal church. That's what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about two different types of Christians. All right. So that's my application. There's only one sort of Christian. 
Actually, there are two types of people. They're called the saved and the lost. (laughs) But he who is spiritual appraises all things, and he he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Meaning that if you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your sins are washed away, and you know God that nobody can appraise that and say it's worthless. They, don't, they have nothing to say about it. Well, I'm not going to be rude, but I got, so I want you to hear me. I'm going to take this mic off. I'm going to take my Bible, and I'm going to run. Because <laughs> I have to be in a motel in Des Moines, Iowa by 3 o'clock. Okay, so I'm not being rude. It's not that I don't want to talk to you. It's just what this Sunday is going to be like for me. Thank you for spending this some hour with us. Thank you.